6. Please follow along with me. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, this morning may we be struck with the reality that if we are in Christ, this conversation has already happened in our lives and is an ongoing process of applying more and more to our hearts, putting to death the old life and bringing even more of the new life in and more of your spirit through that spring of living water welling up inside of us to eternal life. We thank you this morning that you've given us your spirit. We thank you this morning that you've given us your word. And we rely in these next moments on the fact that your spirit illuminates the truth of your word. Would you make that happen now? And would you cause that to well up in us like a spring of living water overflowing to eternal life in worship, in praise, in adoration of Christ as he is worthy? We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title this morning is Worshiping in Spirit and in Truth. The only way of acceptable worship before God. The only possible format, the only possible source of true worship. And when we talk about worship, of course, as we see throughout Scripture, we see it very plainly. Paul tells us in Romans that we ought to offer up our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable what? Worship. Every moment, every step, every thought, every word, every breath, is meant to give praise to the creator who formed you and made you for worship. But this morning, we are going to be speaking more specifically about what goes on in here and what the Samaritan woman is getting at when she asks about the place wherein worship ought to happen. You heard that, didn't you? As soon as she realizes who Jesus is, or at least part of who he is, he's a prophet 
He's someone sent by God with a message from God. He has some kind of information that I really want to know. Now, a lot of people look at the Samaritan woman and say, he just called her out on something pretty serious, and she's dodging that whole topic, right? Hey, I know why you said you don't have a husband. It's because you've had five of them, and you're living with a guy who's not your husband, who potentially might even be someone else's husband. And so oftentimes we look at this passage and many scholars and commentators have said that it seems as though she is diverting that and saying, oh, so you're a prophet. Hey, um, let's leave that whole husband thing behind for a second and talk about this. Where should we worship? Now, I would say that would be a diversion if Jesus' response said that it was a diversion, but it clearly is what Jesus wanted to get at, isn't it? Because our main instruction from this passage is very clearly laid out for us in verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Where are we supposed to worship? On this mountain, in this city, in this place, in that church, with bricked walls or with drywalled walls, with new carpet or old carpet, in our homes, in our cars? Where, 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 where? Jesus says it's not about where, it's about how. It was about where for a time, right? He he tells her, hey, look, you worship what you don't know. But salvation is of the Jews. We worship what we do know. We are supposed to go to Jerusalem. That's where the temple is. So there is a knowing component that needs to happen for her. However, he's saying that the bigger picture is ending up in broader terms than we understand it right now. It's not about which pink chair you sit in on Sunday morning. It's about how you sit in it, right? Then everybody sat up a little bit straighter. No, just kidding. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the posture of your heart, the source of your worship, not what we see physically because God is what in this verse? God is spirit. Spirit is contrary to flesh. It's contrary to physical. It's, it's, it's spiritual, right? And so since God is this, we must worship accordingly. How do we do that? The call is clear. The people of the true God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Not according to our made-up ideas, not according to our intended location, rather in spirit and in truth. Let me recap for a moment the first 15 verses of this just briefly to remind you of the conversation so far. Jesus comes to Samaria. He had to go there. I was just listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones again this morning preach on this passage, and he emphasized so well um, at the end of his message this, well, the King James says not that he needed to go, but that he must needs go. And this was like the whole last 10 minutes of Lloyd-Jones' sermon. He must needs go. And he, he blew out of the water the whole idea of like, well, this is the simplest way to get back to uh, Nazareth, where he came from, is to go through Samaria. Yeah, sure, it's one of the paths, and it's the shortest path, but the must needs go did not come from Jesus saying, Disciples, there's a very important thing I need you to know. We have to go this way because it's the quickest way to get back home. He must needs go because there was a conversation that must needs happen. And there's a conversation that must needs happen in our lives as well. So he comes to the Samaritan woman. He sits at the well in the middle of the day. And we see from our text today the reason why she's coming at the middle of the day. Most likely, right? Women don't typically go to the well in the hottest part of the day by themselves. They go early in the morning or later at night when things have cooled down and when things are 
peaceful and not, you're not super duper hot and you're not going to fill up water jugs and carry them all the way back to your home. And yet she is here alone. And he says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. I want us to remember this request of Christ because clearly this is not him saying, hey, the main thing right now is physical water. He is going to start speaking about living water, spiritual life coming from the Spirit of God into the lives of his people. But he still asks, give me a drink. And I sense from this that there is an importance for us in considering the difference between what Jesus has asked for last week and what he's offering as well. The water that I will give is going to spring up in a person into living water, overflowing all the way to eternal life, never ending. But what does he ask? Give me a drink. Our worship in one sense is comparable to the value of this exchange. Jesus is asking for a momentary sip of water. And he's offering eternal life. Our worship on Sunday morning often feels like offering Jesus a cold cup of water. It seems insignificant. It seems it's a pale in comparison with what he's given us, doesn't it? To come on Sunday morning at 10.30 at a given location and to sit in the chair and to open our Bibles and to sing the songs and to pray the prayer and to hang out for a few minutes after church and then go back to our lives, it's a drop in the bucket compared to everything else that we do, isn't it? Compared to the 40 hours we spend at work, compared to the time we spend at home. It's not that those are bad things at all and God's called us to these kinds of things. But this worshiping in spirit and in truth is of course greater than just giving a cold cup of water, though Jesus does say in another place in the Gospels, that a person who offers a cold cup of water in my name will, not will, will certainly receive his reward. But here, I think we have a great picture to consider what we have to offer in order to magnify the gift that Christ has to offer us. And so he says this to her, everyone who drinks of this water at this well is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And she hears that and says, that sounds so good. I'm so tired of coming to this well. I don't want to come back here. I'm thankful for it. It's the only well in town. But if he's telling me he could give me water and I'd never be thirsty again, I'm in. Sounds great. And so verse 15, we ended last week. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And she's expecting Jesus to explain what he meant or to actually give this kind of magical living water. And instead, in verse 16, he says, go, call your husband and come here. And sets her on a path of realizing what true worship is in the spirit. Her where questions that come are going to be replaced by how questions in the context of gathered worship. Now, much like carrying a piano down the steps, worship in the corporate setting can feel very complicated. It can feel that there is a, a, a lot for us to consider, and truly there is. There is a lot for us to consider when we come into uh, worship together. But I want to offer you three things in preparation for this conversation. And as we look at it, starting backwards, in fact, just for fun, I guess, um, at verse 24 we see a compulsory understanding 
that must be had by this woman in this conversation. He says in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And it's fascinating, again, if we take the King James Version translation at the beginning of this chapter, and we see that Jesus must needs go to Samaria, we now see him saying, those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. A compulsory understanding, a requirement. Real worship begins with the nature of God, that God is spirit. It doesn't begin with the physical. It doesn't even have anything to do with the physical. The physical is just a picture of the spiritual reality when we engage in worship. But the problem is, is that this leaves me in mystery. How can I find the right way to engage in worship with God? Moving up again to verse 23, the second part. Jesus says that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. People who will worship him in spirit and in truth. This is a compelling fact. The Father is seeking these kind of people. So worship begins with God, not with us. It begins with who God is. He is spirit, but it also begins with his action. And this is a compelling fact in worship because we all had to get up this morning, didn't we? We all had to get dressed and brush the teeth and make the breakfast for the kids and get everybody in the car and get over here and have worship. And we're feeling like we're initiating it because at 1029, we say, Kevin, read the Bible verse. And we're starting worship. There's nothing wrong with that. So long as we understand this very thing, God is already seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. Not what we can create, but what he is looking for. But this also can leave me in worry. How can I know if I'm one of the people that he's looking for? How can I really know? How can I know that God wants me to worship and, and doesn't want somebody else to worship? That I'm not just lying to myself and to all of you when I come here on Sunday morning saying that I am worshiping in spirit and in truth. Lastly, a com complex time frame. Look back up again at the first part of verse 23. The hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The hour is coming and is now here. This is not something we can put off. This is a complex time frame because he's talking about now and then in the future will happen. And yet the same thing here, he's saying the hour of true worship has begun, is happening, and will happen. There will be a dramatic increase in the quality or our experience or, or whatever of worship from our experience, from our perspective. But right now, if we're coming to worship God, we ought to come to worship God as if we were entering into his very throne room because that's how he sees worship. Because Christ has come to earth to bring us into worship, to seek those to worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what he's calling you to today. However, in this middle-of-the-page turn in redemptive history, where things are but are yet to be, this makes right now matter so much more than we can communicate to each other. Particularly right now, which is the more passive part of worship, right? Where we sit and listen. And, and in many ways, that feels like disengaging in a lot of ways, because we're not speaking, we're not moving, we're not acting. 
and yet right now matters because this is part of worship. It brings another question. What do I have to do to engage rightly in this worship? What do I have to do to, to, to bring to God what he requires of me? We get this from the Samaritan woman. When she asks about where to worship, she's referring to sacrifice. She's referring to where do I bring my sacrifice to, to be killed on the altar and offered to the Lord I want to know, should I, am I supposed to come to Jerusalem or am I supposed to be on this mountain? And if you're going to tell me I'm going to come to Jerusalem, I've got this whole Jew-Samaritan issue and there's no way I'm going there. So I find a problem. And the, our problem that we find is very much the problem that the Samaritan woman has. That our inclinations are to go to the wrong place in order to worship. And that is, again, for us, for the church, we are not inclined to say, most likely, <laughs> we're not inclined to say, well, I can only worship if I'm at Crosspoint. I mean, right now, you can worship online with us through our Facebook group. And that's, that's real, although it's very much not the same as being present, is it? We've all felt that in the last year and a half, the difference that comes from that. So it's, it's not about us saying, like, no, I can only worship at Cross Point Church or at Grace Community or at uh, Lima Baptist or wherever. These are locations of worship in the physical. We recognize, because we're smart enough to say, it's about how we come to worship more than where we go to worship. And yet, we still face trouble in our own preparation of our hearts for worship. Look again at what Jesus says to this woman in response to her acceptance of his gift. Bring me this water. I'll take this water. Let, let me have it. He says, go, call your husband, and then come here. Now is the time. The role of the testifier begins in the middle of this transformative moment in the Samaritan woman's life. Before she even fully grasps who Jesus is, He's already compelling her to bear testimony to another person about who he is, even though he knows things are not right in that relationship. Even though he knows that she is going to this relationship that he has, that she has, and all those relationships prior to try to find something that she believes she needs that she can only find in the Messiah. In revealing her sin, in her confession, I have no husband, Jesus is leading her to truth. And the Spirit of God is working to apply that truth in her heart. And her response, I perceive that you're a prophet. Again, I don't think she's diverting from the issue. She freely confessed, sir, I don't have a husband. Things are, are not right in my life right now. So I don't think she's diverting this is what Jesus came to do, to seek worshipers, to worship in spirit and in truth. And so her question, where are we supposed to worship, has an underlying value to it, an underlying dilemma, which is, what if my worship isn't accepted? What am I supposed to do if I don't do this thing right? Now, this is not a concern for us immediately on the surface level of church in the United States, is it? Because so often, because you can pick from all sorts of different locations, there are all sorts of different mountains and cities, you can go wherever you want to worship. The question is less likely to be, where's the right place? And more likely to be, what place do I want to be in? Where would I like to worship? Where am I going to feel comfortable? Where am I going to enjoy myself? Where am I going to feel 
safe? Where am I going? I mean, the questions are endless. How do I decide my own life of worship based on my own preferences? We need to come back to this question that the Samaritan woman, this person who, in such contrast from who Jesus just spoke to in chapter 3, Nicodemus, remember? The religious leader, the Pharisee, the, teachers of, the teacher of Israel, the teacher of teachers. And Jesus says, you don't even understand how to be born again. That's Christianity 101, isn't it? You can't be a Christian without having new life, without having life by the Spirit. And yet he comes to the Samaritan woman and she shows a willingness to receive what Jesus has to say in a, in a way that is almost contrast to Nicodemus who simply is befuddled by questions and thinking so naturalistically. She's also thinking very physically minded, very naturally here as she had that conversation last week about water. But she realizes him for who he is. She asks this important question, where are we supposed to worship? And more importantly, what if my worship isn't accepted? How do I get right with God? And it's interesting, as we think about the Samaritans and the Jews, we're talking about two different kingdoms that were split way back in 1 Kings, after Solomon's reign. And the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom split, and we have Jeroboam in the North Kingdom. And, and as he's been anointed king, and he's setting up his own false idea of worship, 1 Kings 12.33 says that he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. It's fascinating in this one verse how many personal singular pronouns we get for Jeroboam. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the month, the month that he devised from his own heart. Worship by preference is not a new American 2021 kind of thing. Worship by preference even goes all the way back to 1 Kings 12 with this Jeroboam setting up a false kingdom and saying, I'm going to worship God as according to what I have devised in my own heart, what I've made up. This is what I will offer to God. And there's an implication in that too, because the implication, it's not as though he's saying, I'll give it my best shot here and maybe he'll be, no, the implication is my setting up my own kingdom and setting up my own rules for worship is my declaration to God that he better receive what I have to offer him. How easily we fall into that same snare on those Sunday mornings where you wake up and say, I just don't want to go to church. Maybe those Sunday mornings happen very frequently or infrequently, but you have those moments and you go through the thought process and you say, okay, well, you know what? I'm just going to go. I'll just do it. And behind that is most likely an unvocalized and even an unthought Condition of the heart that says, I'm going to go do this thing, Lord, and you better be happy with what I'm about to give you. I'm trusting my own feelings. We worship on this mountain, the Samaritan woman says. This is what we have. Jeroboam and kings in the north would set up many different high places to worship. And none of those high places could bring satisfactory worship because of one very thing. Even if those high places would have been built more beautifully and attended more regularly or, or if there was more zeal or more passion, none of that worship was acceptable to God because it wasn't what he had prescribed. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In the north, they neglected and rejected, rather, the truth of God and listened to their own hearts. But in the south, it was not much better. 
The southern kingdom diverted from worship in the spirit. And one of, I think, the best places to understand this is in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. And as Jeremiah has been prophesying, uh, destruction and judgment and punishment is coming. You need to believe this. You need to prepare your hearts for it. You need to repent. He says in verse 4 of chapter 7, do not trust in these deceptive words. He's talking about false prophets who are saying, everything's okay. Don't worry about anything. We've got this figured out. Jeremiah says, don't trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And you can imagine it ends after those three. But what he's talking about is this mindset of worshipers coming to the temple and saying, temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord. This is where I have my safety and my knowledge of knowing what this place is. This is how I know I'm secure with God because I know the right answers to all the questions on the test. Because I have a lot of scripture memorized. I don't trust in my feelings, but I do trust in my knowing. I trust in what I've accomplished, and I turn the knowledge of God into merit before him, into something that is worthy of. Just like in the north, they said, hey, this is how I've decided to do it, and God, you better be happy with it. They in the south have said, hey, we heard how you said to do it, and you still better be happy with what we have to offer you, because we know it all. We're very smart. We have scripture memorized. We know the words to all the songs. We can pray very eloquently. We're very impressive in our, our, our Christian life. We're safe. We're secure. But they were lacking repentance. They were lacking a turning from sin that was not only suggested to enhance worship. It wasn't like adding a fog machine to um, create a greater emotional atmosphere. Repentance is a necessary element to worship. And that's what Jesus is getting at in the first place in verse 16. Go call your husband and bring him here. You have to testify about who I am. I can't do that. I, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know. Things are a lot worse than what you're letting on, too. Oh, my goodness, you're a prophet. Look, I need to know how to worship God. How am I supposed to do that? What can you offer me? You told, you told me something about living water. I don't really understand that. Like, I, I don't want to come back to the well and, and get water every single day. That's such a hassle. But, but I'm realizing there's a depth to what you're talking about, and I just don't get it. What is her hope in the end of this passage? I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So the Samaritan woman didn't have all the knowledge because she was up in the north where they just had the feelings. Jesus does say, hey, look, we, we Jews, we do have, salvation is from the Jews. All, all the promises of God to David for a king who would sit on his throne forever, an heir who would make all things right, the Messiah that you're talking about, you guys reject so much of God's word because you only read the first five books of the Bible. And you miss all the beautiful prophecy of everything that Jesus says that I am coming to fulfill. And so in this great need that we have for genuine worship, you see, the only way we can get to genuine and meaningful worship is for the Messiah to come to seek worshipers and to give his life in order to guide us in the truth, to give his spirit. When we see Christ as he is in this passage, we understand what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. This is a, thing, a question that at the beginning of the week, I was like, oh boy, I'm gonna have to define worshiping in spirit and in truth. That sounds really big. Guess what? It's really not that hard because Jesus is not intentionally hiding things from this woman. We worship in spirit and in truth through the Messiah. 
worship in spirit and, the, and truth exalts Christ and not self. Because the opposite would be to worship in the physical and worship in a lie. But Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the giver of his Holy Spirit who comes to our spirit and renews us and gives us true power to worship, illuminating the text of his word and compelling our hearts. That's what's so important when we read the passage at the beginning of the sermon. That's why I always say, and I didn't say it today because I want to say it now, that is the most important thing we're going to do today because the Spirit desires to illuminate. That is to put light behind and shine into the eyes of your heart the truth of what God has said. And if worship doesn't seem genuine or if we know something is wrong or if we get up and we leave, I'm not trying to bail myself out here. The problem is not that the sermon was bad. That might be a problem, but that's not the main problem. Because a bad sermon that at least begins with this can still compel the heart of a believer to say, Christ is good. He's worthy. And I didn't understand anything that that guy said, but I know that Christ is worthy of my right worship because he's given me his life, because he's the revealer of the truth. John 1.18, we read months ago, no one has ever seen God. The only God, that is who is spirit, right? We cannot see him. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Our problem of worship and our ability, our inability rather, to seek him out and to find God in worship is all solved by the fact that God has sought after us. He is the one who has initiated you coming to sit in this service today. It wasn't just your decision. It's a very small view to say, I decided to come to church today and therefore God's going to have to do something for me now. God has a way better thing for you than to just make this transactional. If you come to church, I'll make sure your week goes really well. If you come to church, I'll give you five steps on how to make better money next week. None of that's going to happen. He wants to give you his spirit. He wants to give you the truth. And Jesus is the one who came and took on human flesh to not only communicate to us, but to live among us. And to die in our place. To be the atoning sacrifice that we could never offer. So when he says that we must worship in spirit and in truth, he's talking about the encompassing description of the one true way of worshiping, all-consuming the attitude of worship. We worship in Christ by what he gives us, and we offer worship to the Father through that, through him, through his spirit. He's already alluded to it. Jesus is not having a random conversation that's going here and there with the Samaritan woman. He must needs go through Samaria. Wish I could say it like Lloyd-Jones did. John 16, 13, Jesus tells his disciples, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. All truth. That is his desire, to guide you into all truth so that whatever happens to be said from the pulpit on Sunday morning, you can take this passage and say, Holy Spirit, shine light on my heart from these words and transform me. And guess what? He never says no to that. So even if at the bare minimum, you're just tired of feeling like God is saying no to everything you're asking him for, ask him to give you a true spirit of worship and watch him say yes and watch all those other cares and all those things that didn't work out the way you wanted them to, all the prayer requests that seemed to just hit the ceiling and fall flat on the floor. Watch them 
turn to nothing in comparison to true worship in the Spirit of God. Christ takes those complicated questions that we mentioned at the beginning and he completes them. How can I find a way to engage with God through Christ? I cannot reach up to him. I can't build a tower of Babel, but he can come down and he has in Christ. How can I know I'm one that he's looking for? If you're hearing my voice right now, it's a very likely case that you are one that he is looking for. I have no reason to say, elect, non-elect, elect, non-elect. I don't know. How do I know if God's really calling me? Can you hear him? Do you have access to this thing? Can you hear what he's saying to you through this book, through the Spirit illuminating it? And is there anyone that God would have come to him that he would cast out, that he would forsake? Absolutely not. What time is left to decide about worship? There is no time left. We don't get to figure this out. And then once we get to heaven, we say, hey, Lord, we've been talking about this our whole lives. Here we are in heaven. We're going to make it happen. Okay, we brought the fog machine. We have the music, the sounds. No, that's not it. This is not a practice run for heaven. This is engaging with the reality of heaven. That's what's going on on Sunday mornings. It's not just pretending and putting on a show. It is engaging with God in worship, in spirit, and in truth. We can't play games in worship. We can't take it lightly. His glory is at stake, and our joy is empty if we leave it alone. The woman of Samaria knew that when the Messiah was to arrive, he would tell her all things, and he has the solution to all of her questions and all of her longings, both for physical water, for living water, for dealing with relationships, for how and where to worship and how to know that my sacrifice is available. He says, I who speak to you am he. He's not simply answering a factual question that she is perhaps implying. I know that when Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things. Are you the Messiah? He's not just saying, yes, a fact is that I am the Messiah. And... Um, that's true. It's actually pouring that truth into her life and transforming her through it. Right? He has spoken to us. He has spoken clearly. And now since he has spoken clearly, since he has redeemed us and freed us from the penalty of sin and brought us into worship to the Father, in this already not yet, we must needs now worship from the storehouse of truth and the spirit of life which are both ours in Christ, all that he has for us. Because of his atonement, because he died on the Christ cross and rose again, he has equipped us to worship in spirit and in truth. And that is not a, a, an either-or kind of situation. That is not, again, we fall in error when we divide these things and we say, well, in spirit is for me to get my heart, you know, really pumped up and really excited. Well, in truth is for me to download all the information. No, take those lies away and put them together to understand that we worship our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And when it comes to the heart and mind, we worship him with our affections, with our, our, our personalities, with our desires, our goals, our dreams, our hopes, our plans, our resolutions. And with the mind, we fill our minds up with truth so that on Sunday morning, when you come in and you go, I just don't think I can do this. Start asking yourself, what is true? What is actually going on here? And is whatever is slowing me down from right worship stronger than the Spirit of God? 
And I say no. Philippians 3.3, Paul tells us that we who are the church worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What a great formula for a Sunday morning mindset. Worship by the Spirit for the glory of Christ, putting no confidence in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, I'm not going to go there and say, well, as long as I lift up my hands every chorus or as long as I, I pray with my eyes held really tightly, you know, maybe I get down on my knees. No, we don't worship in the flesh. We don't worship with outward display. We come in and we rend our hearts to God and we say, Lord, do what you're going to do in me for your glory and I'll put no confidence in myself. If we're going to worship for eternity, we ought to be worshiping now. It's not a test run. It is an engaging and a deeper reality that we don't see with our eyes. God is spirit. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. And because of what Christ has done, we absolutely can. And in that, we find ourselves as testifiers to others in our worship. Because although not everyone can hear our singing, it is happening. And and we do leave these doors hopefully with those songs in our hearts, with the truth from the word in our hearts. And that is meant to overflow like a spring of living water into the lives of other people around us. We'll know and we'll see next week, Lord willing, how this woman does that in a very, uh, boy, in some people's minds, it would have been embarrassing for her to run through the town and just ask people, have you come and see this person who told me everything I ever did? Can you say that? I think we all can. I think we can all say the simple words of inviting somebody not to come to Cross Point Community Church and join our membership list so that we can move from this number to that number. No, that's worshiping in the flesh. It's worship in the spirit. Call people to worship God in spirit and in truth together. Let's bear that testimony that they would never thirst for what they truly need because in him, in Christ, we have a fountain of living water overflowing all the way to eternal life. So would you this morning ask the Spirit to empower you for worship? Ask him to, in the week ahead, illuminate? I mean, that's one word you could just rest on for days this week. Illuminate. If you have a Bible reading plan, or if you're just, hey, I'm just reading through this book or whatever, before you open the word, just simple prayer. Lord, illuminate the text to me. Turn the lights on so that I can see the truth. And so that my reading of the text would also become worship and would spring up in me as a living water springing up and overflowing to eternal life. This passage is why we sing songs like what we're about to sing, Christ, our hope in life and death. This is a great song. It's, it's a pretty much brand new song. We sang it last week, of course, um, but it came out in the last year. And one of the things that's so great about it is it asks us questions. You can't get away with false worship if you're really listening to the song and really paying attention to what's being said. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. And the questions that follow. The questions of our hearts in worship answered clearly, definitively, and transforming all of our worship for his glory. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord, we're coming now to our understanding of worship. In our understanding of worship, we're coming to the last song, the last thing that we have to do before all this is over, the last thing that we'll engage in together until 
according to your will, we meet again. Many of us are thinking, now it's time to do the thing. Now it's time to get to the place. Now let's just slow down. Father, if we're unfamiliar with this song, illuminate the truth of your word that is hidden in this song. Spirit, would you come not for uh, just some mere physical expression uh, or outworking of, of hands raised or of running up and down the halls or rolling across the floor or whatever in the world people think could be evidence of your spirit. Lord, would you come and create real, lasting, transformative change in our hearts? Spring up that well inside of our hearts, Lord, to eternal life. Perhaps some of us have tried to put a rock over it the past week or ignored it or held it down <laughs> trying to find other sources, Lord. Let us glory in the living water that we've been given through Christ. Let us ask ourselves these questions so that we might be prompted and carried up into worship in spirit and in truth. Not for our own benefit primarily, but for your glory and that we might receive the joy that you intend to give us in glorifying yourself and your son, Jesus. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.